Cosmo with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. Today we'll be talking about the pretty fun topic of robot toys. More specifically, 2017's best-selling toy on Amazon.com, Cosmo. But first, a quick announcement from the team. With Ikra now behind us, we've added a new, very exciting goal to our Patreon campaign. We're asking you, our listeners, to help us cover the 2018 International Conference on Intelligent Robots. Intrigued? I'll explain more at the end of this episode. For now, let's get back to today's topic, robot toys. At Anki, a consumer robotics and AI company, they started with Anki Drive and Overdrive, an intelligent battle racing system made up of self-aware robot cars and your smartphone used as a controller. But now they are all about Cosmo, a tiny intelligent robot that fits in the palm of your hand and is built to be a game-playing machine. He comes with a number of preloaded games and you can even use the Cosmo software development kit to create your own experiences. Our interviewer Abate spoke to Andrew Stein, technical director of computer vision at Anki, about some of the challenges of designing interactive toy robots, Cosmo's development, people's reactions to Cosmo, and what's behind its success. Hello, and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure, this is Andrew Stein from Anki. Hey, Andrew. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Anki and what Anki is doing in general? Sure. So Anki is a consumer robotics company uh, here in San Francisco. And um, I work on a project called Cosmo. And we make uh, different consumer robots, mainly focused in entertainment at the moment. Uh, we started out with a product called Drive and Overdrive, which was a toy race car game where you took, we took physical cars and had them drive around on a track. Uh, and play games with them the same way you would experience in a in a video game, but not on the screen in real life. So the cars are real and they actually drive themselves, uh, and they're controlled by your by a smartphone. And the the idea behind that pro- product was really taking something off the screen and making it making it real. And to do that, we had to you know employ a lot of uh, techniques from robotics and, and and AI. Our next product is called Cosmo, and that's really where I've uh, I've been focused for the last uh, almost five years now. And um, Cosmo, is a, it's a similar idea in that we're trying to take a robot that you might see in a movie or, or on screen and make it real as well, bring it to life. So I'd say what we're doing at Anki is really trying to, to bring physical devices to life through robotics. Can you describe the look and feel of Cosmo? Sure. So Cosmo is a, a cute little robot uh, with, a lot, with a lot of personality. Um, if, when people see pictures of him, uh, it, it's funny. It's interesting. People people have seen pic- pictures of him often come in and see him in in real life and are surprised at how small he is. So he's a he's um, the size of sort of the palm of your hand. He fits he fits in your hand, and uh, so he's sort of a tabletop robot. Uh, it's not a robot that drives around your home. It's one that you sort of interact with at a tabletop scale. Um, and he's got an animated face and a little lifting mechanism because he comes with three little blocks that are sort of his toys and the the uh, 
effectively game pieces that you interact with him through. So he can use his little lifter to pick up his blocks, carry them around, and make stacks. Um, so yeah, he's a he's in some ways I like to call him a, a hamster crossed with a forklift. He's sort of a little cute creature that runs around on your table um, and uh, also has this little forklifting mechanism so he can pick up his blocks uh, and play with those. Okay, so Cosmo then, it's uh, Cosmo's wheeled and drives around and it it's, resembles a little bit of a, a tractor, is it? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I'm, I'm sure that our design team would, would not be happy with me referring to him as a hamster, a forklift, or a tractor. Uh, he's the best of all three, I would say. Um, he's, he really, there's a lot of uh, focus on industrial design to make him an appealing character and not look like a vehicle. Um, but yes, I guess in functionality, uh, he's sort of like a tractor. He's actually treaded instead of wheeled. Um, so he's, he drives around on his, on his two treads and his, he has an articulated, as I mentioned, articulated lift as well as an articulated head. So he can, he can move his head around and then, a, um, a screen on his face to display his, his eyes, which really, uh, give him a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. And can you describe why you decided to go with a tractor sort of, or a, a sort of small wheeled car design? Sure. So uh, the, the the treads in particular are an interesting design decision. In fact, one of the early, many of the early versions of the of the robot were were wheeled. Um, their wheels are certainly easier to control uh, in terms of the steering. So one of the reasons though we wanted to add treads, not only does it from a uh, I guess design aesthetic they look they will sort of look cool. Um, it does allow some of the behaviors that he can do when he sort of gets pivoted up on his on, on his uh, back end, he can still propel himself because the treads are always in contact with the ground. Um, it allows him to do some things that people don't necessarily expect. For example, he can roll a cube by um, putting his lift on top of it and pushing down and backing up. And that that's not possible if he was front-wheel drive with four wheels, which was the earlier design. So the treads give him some physical abilities. Also, they also they let him... Um, be a little more robust to driving over small things on the, on the desk and uh, driving up on things, um, which makes them a little more, um, more, more capable. Uh, the downside of treads is they're much harder to control. They, they slip on the table. Um, they, it's very hard to predict exactly when you tell him to turn in place, for example, the center of rotation isn't necessarily the middle of the robot. Uh, it varies depending on the surface he's on, whether he's carrying a cube, how dusty his treads might've gotten, um, so it's extremely hard to to control that accurately. So the robotic our robotics team is less happy about treads, but uh, the design team is happy because they look they look good and and add some cool uh, cool capabilities. Mm-hmm. And can you describe the toys that Cosmo has? Why why do, why does he have two uh, cubes as toys? Sure. So <clears throat> um, there's there's a lot of history to the to the to the project that sort of led to the to this um, to these cubes, but I guess. It gives him something to interact with and do. Um, I, I would say one of the interesting things about most, uh, I guess, consumer robotics and, and many robots that you see uh, for sale today is they're largely cameras on wheels, um, and they can't actually manipulate the world effectively. Uh, manipulation is, is an extremely hard and, I would say, unsolved uh, problem at this point. We've made a lot of strides in perception, for example, in computer vision um, and navigation, I think manipulation still has a ways to go before we start seeing it deployed on a wide scale, wide scale. And I think that's one of the things that actually makes Cosmo so interesting. It is a constrained form of manipulation, but it is in fact manipulation that he can see his, uh, his cubes and drive up to them and get his little fingers in the tiny little holes 
and pick them up and carry them around and make stacks out of them. So and he's he's actually a little mobile manipulator. Um, and so I think from a robotic standpoint, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff about that, which which was exciting to us to do. But it also, again, back to his personality, it's they're sort of an extension of him. They're they're his playthings. They're it's like if your dog has a his favorite toy, um, and it gives him something interesting to do when you're not playing with him. So he's not a remote control car. He is in fact, you know, fully autonomous. So if you leave him alone on the table and with his cubes, he'll and he you know he's he, if he gets bored, he'll start moving his cubes around and making stacks out of them and rolling them and. Uh, knocking over in stacks. And the other use case we have for them is that um, uh, they're a way to interact with him without using the screen. So there's a few games you can play with him using the cubes um, as sort of the game pieces. Uh, for example, there's a game called Quick Tap where um, you're both trying to to tap the cube the uh, the faster. So the cubes are, have little lights on them and the cubes will show different colored lights and when both cubes have the same light, you're supposed to tap. Or sorry, the same color light, you're supposed to tap. And so Cosmo can play this game with you, um, and and it gives you a way to play a very interactive, hands-on game with him by smacking the cube the same way that he can smack the cube with his lift, um, without needing to you know sort of go back to the screen and and and, and play on the phone and, and use that sort of interface. So it's it's about kind of bringing you into his world and playing with him very directly versus. Uh, you know, it being feeling like another video game. Mm-hmm. And who is the intended audience to interact with Cosmo and play these games? So we, you know, we we're, our marketing is is largely targeted at um, kids, sort of eight to probably eight to twelve or six to twelve, something along those lines. Um, but interestingly, uh, I think I don't know the exact numbers, but something like forty percent of our uh, our users are actually adults. So we saw this with with Drive and Overdrive as well. Parents sort of, you know, they buy the toy for their kid, but they really want to play with it too. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, that sort of speaks to, to how engaging the, um, the products can be and people's interest level with, with robots. There is something very visceral about interacting with a physical device and having it seem like it's alive versus the more typical, like seeing things on a screen. Um, so again, we're, it's, we definitely have a, a, a wide range of ages, but I would say we're sort of targeting kids, both because it is sort of in the premium toy space and it, you know, it's it's cute and the style of the games are sort of simple, fun games for kids. Um, but uh, we also have, which we can discuss a little bit more later, we also have a full SDK and the ability to program the robot. Um, and we've picked up a lot of interest, I think, on hobbyists and um, uh, adults who are interested in robotics and programming as well. Mm-hmm. And can you also describe what type of sensors Cosmo has to use and understand the world around him? <clears throat> sure. So uh, his main uh, his main mode of, vis- of uh, sensing is vision. So he has a camera in his face, um, and so that's that's really my focus area. Um, and and why I started on the project so early is um, Overdrive doesn't really use a lot of computer vision. Those cars have cameras to point down and read the track that they're driving on, but they aren't looking out at the world and trying to make sense of it. So. Cosmo was our first project to um, make use of computer vision. So <clears throat> that's the main sensor that we employ um, for a very good reason. Cameras are very cheap now, thanks to cell phones. Um, they're, they're commodity items at this point. So it's an extremely information-rich sensor to get a lot of, uh, a lot of information out of the world and, and make sense of it. So the camera in his face is the primary sensor. He also has a little sensor on the bottom, um, which points downward. 
to prevent him from driving off the table so he can sense cliffs. Um, since he only has a single camera, he doesn't have depth perception. So that cliff sensor allows him to, to sense drop-offs. Um, so he'll stay on the table for you. Um, and then internally, uh, he has encoders and uh, an IMU, an inertial, inertial measurement unit, um, which allow us to know where he is, how he's driving around. So he, he can, his, his IMU is sort of his inner ear, so he can, he can sense when he's been turned, um, and he can feel that the same way that you, that you can. And uh, he has encoders on his motors that drive the treads, as well as his head and his lift. And so those allow us to know the position, uh, or really the, 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 to do position and speed control on all the motors, which is how we make his, uh, put his lift in a particular position or drive him at a particular speed or make him turn at a particular angle, uh, move his head to a particular angle. Um, and then all of those things are also very important for how he's, he's animated. Mm-hmm. And what type of computer vision algorithms does Cosmo employ? Sure. So I guess the the main two things um, that are that are immediately obvious are um, techniques to see his cubes. So he has to both uh, detect when his cubes are in his field of view. Right? He has to see them in the image, and they can be anywhere. Uh, you can be holding them up off the table. They can be way out in front of him. They can be smack dab in front of his face. Um, so he's got to be able to find those cubes in his image. But beyond that, he also has to be able to figure out their pose in three dimensions. So for him to pick up those cubes, he has to do pose estimation so that he knows exactly where they are with respect to him so that he knows how to get himself in position. And so uh, that involves some 3D computer vision to to do that that um, estimation of a 3D pose from what is really just a 2D signal and image. Um, so those that employs a lot of classical computer vision techniques. Um, and then there's also face detection and face recognition. So Cosmo does see your face. He can also actually see your cat, cat and dog's face as well. And for human faces, he can also do face recognition. So you can introduce yourself to Cosmo and tell him your name. And um, once you've been introduced and he scans your face, he, he'll, he can remember it. And he'll remember up to 10 different people. And so when he sees you, um, he, he again, it's, it's a similar issue with the cubes as with the cubes. He detects where you are in the image, and he can turn towards you, make eye contact. Um, he has a rough idea how far away you are, um, and we have we play a little trick there by using the, the the fact that the distance between human eyeballs is pretty is pretty sta- pretty standard. Um, and so then he kind of keeps track of people in in his uh, immediate surroundings as well, so that he can call you by name and he can look up at you and and really bring you into the experience. Um, those are probably the two main uses of computer vision. Um, there, there are some smaller, some smaller things under the hood that we do, um, for him realizing there's interesting things in the world in front of him, uh, as well by looking for sort of interesting stuff on the ground plane in front of him. And that allows him to, to, um, get interested in things that are in front of him that he can't otherwise sense in any other way, right? He doesn't have, again, he doesn't have a depth sensor. So, um, it allows us to see out in front of the robot, and and uh, drive up to things and at least feign interest in them um, again to give him more personality. It sounds like a lot of these algorithms um, cost a lot of computing power. Has it, has that been a challenge doing it locally on a small computer board? Absolutely. So uh, in- interesting question, and it's something I didn't actually explain clearly. So I'm glad you asked. So we did actually initially start out doing all of this compute on the robot. Um, we realized that was just going to be too constraining, given the, the price point that we were trying to hit um, to make this 
to make this a, a, a consumer product. So one of the tricks that we played with Drive, as I mentioned, is that um, we, those cars were controlled with your phone. So the cars don't have a lot of smarts in them. They're really just um, doing the very raw signal processing. And then your phone is actually controlling where they drive via a Bluetooth connection, Bluetooth lower energy. Um, so we did this, wanted to do a similar thing with Cosmo that, so that we could we could take advantage of the compute power everybody has in their pocket um, and, and offload some of that to, to a phone or smart device. Now, the challenge there is that um, to do it with computer vision, we need to send images up to your phone. And there's just not enough bandwidth over Bluetooth low energy to do that. So we actually establish a Wi-Fi connection, direct Wi-Fi connection between your phone or, or tablet and the robot. And his images are being streamed to your phone. And I want to emphasize that's a that's a, a closed network, so there's no uh, there's no connection up to to the cloud or onto servers or anything like that. So all that computer vision and all the path planning and the the AI and behavior system, all the animation system is actually running on your phone, and the images are streaming from the robot to the phone, being processed. Decisions are being made, and then the results uh, and the control system to drive the robot are actually sent back uh, over Wi-Fi as well. So there's sort of streaming in both directions. Now. That, that gives us the big advantage of having a lot more compute uh, for lower cost because we can take advantage of your phone. The downside, of course, is that we now have latency. Um, so there's a, there's a delay in how long it takes from, for the image to get from the robot to the phone, be processed, a decision to be made, and the, the command to be sent back to the robot. So there's a lot of challenge uh, and technical detail in there about how do, you, um, how do you deal with the latency in both directions of controlling this robot uh, uh, across that Wi-Fi link so that he doesn't feel, you know, sluggish or slow. We can't have him like take a picture, send it up, sit there, <laughs> wait, have the, the control come back. Robot does something, take another picture, right? He's, he's got to seem like he's, uh, he's still alive, even though his, his sort of control signal is, is, is running a little behind. Mm -hmm. So on the phone, are you running something alternative to OpenCV to do the uh, image processing and computer vision algorithms. Sure. So uh, you know, OpenCV is is really just a it's a library of of low level computer vision functions, right? It doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily solve anything for you uh, end to end. It's it's a tool just like you know programming in C plus plus is tool is a tool or any other library of 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 uh, of functions for any other purpose is a tool. We, we still have to build everything on top of it. So we do use some data structures from OpenCV. There are some low-level functions we use, but particularly in terms of the cube detection uh, and pose estimation, we rely on some functionality from OpenCV, but uh, a lot of that is, is pretty, pretty much custom-built. Um, so OpenCV is a tool that we employ, but there's also just a lot of you know, um, um, stuff built from the ground up as well. Mm -hmm. And is this also limited then to certain types of phones that have enough computing power to be able to handle this? Uh, I, I should know this off the top of my head, what the minimum iOS version is, for example. I think it's iOS uh, 5. I'm not sure. But it's um, it's pretty much any recent phone, so that's not really an issue. Yeah, it's not like you need an iPhone 8 or you know iPhone 10 or the greatest Android or Google Pixel or something to, to run this. So th this, this product was starting to be developed uh, I guess this is back in 2013. So, and we were we were still running on all the phones that we could run Drive on. So, um, yeah, pretty much any smartphone. In fact, it'll work on a Kindle Fire, which is not a super high powered 
uh, uh, tablet either. So we, we've, we still had to do a lot of work to make sure that we could do all these algorithms at reasonable frame rate uh, on devices that were generally available. I mean, we have to understand, right, that for our market, we, we can't expect every every kid we want to play with Cosmo to have a super high-end phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and rough, roughly what frame rate and resolution is the video that you're streaming back and forth over Wi-Fi? Sure. So <clears throat> Cosmo's camera is um, called QVGA, which is uh, 320 by 240. Um, and the camera is actually higher resolution, but we only use it at 320 by 240. Um, and it streams at, uh, we're actually operating at about 15 frames a second. So it, it is funny, people often want to know, you know, how many megapixels is Cosmo camera? And, and I think because of dig- consumer digital camera space, that that spec has gotten massively overblown. The number of pixels is really not the issue with computer vision. In fact, high resolution really just makes things harder because it gets really slow. Um, so there's a lot of information even in a very low resolution image. Um, so it may not look good to a person <clears throat> the way that you know your phone camera is, but the, the use is not uh, not one of um, of making pretty pictures. It's how do we extract information from those images and, and low resolution is, is totally fine. And with the low resolution camera, is there a limit on how far a person can be before they just become too blurry or too few pixels? Right. That is the, you're right. So that is the, that is the constraint. Um, obviously you don't have enough resolution. He can't, he can't resolve you, uh, or his cube, but for the purposes of a robot of this scale, um, he can easily see people, you know, six, eight feet away. Uh, and he can see his cubes probably, you know, one to two feet away, which at his scale makes, makes total sense. It, it sort of, it, it's all driven by, you know, what feels right on the robot and for his personality and for the product. And, um, and, and the, so that resolution meets those requirements. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the videos of Cosmo and play, I'm always taken aback by how expressive and engaging the robot is. Um, could you describe some of the, the different, um, behaviors and the uh, physical design that enables Cosmo to be so expressive. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you asked because that's sort of the other the other giant half of this product that we haven't really touched on yet. I think so far what I've talked about is more the the engineering technical side of of making a what is you know more typical the robotic side of things that people think about with robots. But the other huge part of this project. Um, is, is how to make him seem lifelike, not just because he's smart and has computer vision and does it, uh, you know, quote unquote AI, um, but, but to make him seem lifelike in terms of his personality and character. And I think that's the other huge piece of, of the, the product. And we spent an enormous amount of time developing that side of things as well. So in addition to all the, you know, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, computer scientists, roboticists that we have working here, um, we also have a team of designers uh, character, char- character designers and animators, um, who work on the product. And these are, you know, animators that have come from, um, the movie industry and from video games who have a lot of experience animating things on screen and bringing to life, um, you know, various, uh, various characters on the screen via tools like Maya and, and their, their understanding of what it takes to make very subtle changes in, in motion or, or expression to give a sense of a, of a particular mood state or, um, you know, whether, whether the character is happy, unhappy, um, excited, et cetera. And we wanted to bring all of that to Cosmo. And so I've, I've sort of mentioned it a little bit about animation streaming to the robot. But what that really means is we have this team who has a, has a, a Maya installation on the computer that they animate a, 
a computer-generated rig on their screen the same way they would for a movie. But at the end of the day, when they hit render, instead of rendering a, uh, a, a movie output, a video output to the screen, we actually have built the tooling to render that effectively straight to hardware. So the animations that they create that are sort of movie-quality animations for this character uh, are running on the physical robot uh, by streaming from the phone and controlling his various uh, motors that we talked about. So they can animate uh, a track that controls his lift. They can animate his uh, his head. They can animate his body. They, he has backpack lights that he can animate. Uh, and very critically, they can animate his face, um, which has, it's just two eyes and it seems very simple, but it's actually 44 parameters that they can control independently to get different expressions on his face and animate them. And then uh, another huge part of it is sound design. So we have a sound design team that create his voice, that work very closely with the animation team to bring to him, bring him to life. So there's a lot of tech under the hood to make all that work uh, and, and stream successfully and be synchronized. And, uh, you know, there's design decisions around how we chose the motors and the controllers so that they can move his, his parts quickly enough and can react and can actually act out the things the animators want. Um, to, to make all this come to life. And I, I, I think you're right. That's the other thing that people were very taken aback when they first see him uh, come to life on his charger. And he, he wakes up, he's sort of snoring on his charger and he wakes up and he moves in a way that I think is uh, unexpected. Um, people are used to seeing robot drive on table in straight lines and seem very robotic and very, uh, very dead. Uh, and, and this robot just doesn't feel that way at all. He, he reacts, uh, uh, very clearly to things. You can tell that when he's happy or sad, uh, when he wins a game, he gets happy. If you beat him, he can get, he can get bummed out. Uh, it's, 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 uh, really, uh, one of the key features of the, of the product. When we, when we first launched or when we first started testing it with kids, one of the things that we observed is we had, we had tuned one of the, one of the games that you play with him so that the kid generally would win the first time Cosmo didn't play it very well, uh, to start out. And turns out it's, you know, kids really like to win the first time, but <laughs> But when the kid would beat Cosmo and he would get sad, it would, immediately many kids would be like, oh, oh, I want to play again because I want to let him win. And, you know, we were able to sort of bring that out just, just by virtue of the, the, the acting that the robot does after he loses the game. And I think, you know, building that connection in concert with all this technical stuff we can do and his ability to make eye contact with you are really what kind of set the, set the product apart from being just you know, just another you know, remote control car kind of experience. So when Cosmo reacts to the behavior of the person that they're interacting with, the motion is designed by the animators, um, as opposed to the classical robotics approach of having control algorithms? It's actually a combination. Very good question. Um, and that's also one of the challenges is how to integrate these animations into, uh, you know, sort of more typical, as you described, motion control systems and path planning because um, we do need both right the animators can't animate for all possible conditions um, it's one of the things that they have to that i think is a very steep learning curve when they join is when you're animating on screen you control everything right you control the viewpoint of your of your the the person the, the audience you can uh control everything perfectly you know everything perfectly you know where the person is that the thing is looking at because it's part of the it's part of the movie um but with Cosmo, right, we don't like the animators can't know ahead of time where the person might be watching the robot. They can't know if the in the middle of playing their animation, the six year old picks up the robot and carries him across the room or puts him on his back or, or whatever. So there's all these sort of edge cases you have to deal with when being a live uh, interactive 
product like this. And so a lot of the a lot of the tech under the hood in in, in terms of the what we call the the behavior system is is how to do exactly what you just described. How do you know, how do you sort of hand off control between the two systems, between the the path planner which wants to drive the robot over to the other side of the cube so that he can pick it up with the animation system which also wants to make the robot move in a certain way to make him look happy and excited when he does the the, the pickup. And so there is sort of a blending of those two things and there's there's a fair amount of system under the hood there to try to make that uh, make that seamless. Cosmos animations, are they designed to mimic the behavior of a pet or maybe of a playful friend that's something a little bit smarter than a pet or something entirely different? Yeah, that'd be a great question for our character designer. Um, there, there's, it's, it's really interesting to see our, um, see all the, the, um, storyboards is the word I'm looking for, um, that the character design and animation team go through to sort of decide what does make sense in a given situation. So they do a lot of this sketching to sort of figure out what, what should Cosmo do. And it's, it's definitely interesting as an engineer to sit in a meeting and have discussions about, you know, what, what are Cosmo's motivations for what he's doing right now? Um, it's not typically what you think about in robotics. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, they do draw from a lot of sources. And I think, you know, cute animal is one of them, but he also, they, they want to make him have his own personality and that everything he, he does should make sense given the character of Cosmo, that he is a, a character we are trying to develop with a specific, you know, sort of personality and way of doing things. And so I think they have drawn from a, a variety of sources, as you mentioned, um, but also tried to create something new. And do you employ any artificial intelligence algorithms into Cosmo as well? <clears throat> sure. I mean, I always struggle with uh, questions about uh, the magic term AI. I think it's it's used so broadly now that it's hard to even know what it means. Um, I uh, I would say computer vision is a form of artificial intelligence. Um, so some of the things we already discussed, the behavior system that I'm talking about is, it, in a sense, artificial intelligence. And I think that's what people typically mean with reference to Cosmo, um, the way that he we have created a, a, a sort of emotion system under the hood where we model his emotional state. And that state can be changed by different events. So, for example, he sees a person, he gets less lonely. Uh, if he hasn't seen a person in a while, he might get more lonely. And if he's too lonely, that might trigger a particular behavior to take over. Um, this whole thing, right, is not it can't be a scripted set of actions. It can't be a linear uh, sequence of events like a movie, again, because we can't control everything. So uh, the ma the manner in which we make Cosmo um seem lifelike by, you know, reacting to things around him and, and switching behaviors and doing things that, you know, doing A followed by B in a way that makes sense because of his particular mood state. Um, all those things, I guess, are, are what I would call sort of the artificial intelligence of Cosmo. Um, and, and so that it, it, again, it seems not overly repetitive and seems more lifelike and integrates all these different, uh, all these different, sort of puzzle, different pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And earlier you mentioned Cosmos SDK. Could you describe that a bit? <clears throat> sure. So another decision we made early on um, in designing the product, um, sort of more on the software side, is that we really did want there to be the possibility of a software development kit so that um, people out there could, could use Cosmo. And so we architected the software very early on to create a, an interface that um, interface to what we call the robotics engine that is actually the same interface that's used by the Cosmo app um, so that we could expose that same interface out through a Python SDK. 
So from, from day one, we've had um, this Python SDK, which exposes all this functionality um, to, to people who want to play with them. And in fact, not everyone realizes it, but everyone has it. You don't have to actually do a whole lot. The, the Cosmo app, actually, in the settings screen, if you scroll over, there's a button that just says enable SDK, puts the robot in a mode that now if you attach your phone running that app to your computer, you can um, use Python to control the robot. And there's, there's instructions on the, on the website for doing all that. And the really cool thing about it is that um, unlike a lot of sort of typical robotics platforms uh, and APIs for kids, um, it provides an incredibly wide uh, array of functionality. So you can do the sort of typical things of, you know, drive wheel at such and such speed or blink, blink backpack light, but you also have to get very high level controls um, for utilizing the face recognition system and, you know, detecting his blocks and having him pick up blocks and use the path planner. You can get the raw image feed if you want um, to do your own vision work. And so what we've seen is that people have adopted this at a, at a wide range of levels. Um, so uh, both Carnegie Mellon and Georgia Tech use, uh, use Cosmo in um, some of their classes. We've had a couple of programming camps now, um, one of them, ID Tech, has uh, started launched a couple of classes for this summer where they're built around Cosmo. Um, and we've seen a lot of interest in, in people using them for, as research platforms. Um, uh, professor at, at Carnegie Mellon, Dave Turetsky, is has built his own uh, programming uh, language for kids called Calypso on top of this. So it's really take, kind of taking off in terms of uh, providing a really, a really full-featured set of, of robotic programming uh, functionality to, to, to people through Python. Uh, we had to build it all to make the product and it felt right to make it, to then be able to expose that for people to, to do what they wanted. And I would say the other interesting thing that we, we didn't really expect is beyond using it for sort of programming and robotics, um, people have used it for creative purposes. So there are YouTube channels, um, built around movies made with Cosmo where people use the, uh, the SDK to script him, um, and have him say things and, you know, say his lines and, and, uh, act out little sequences and they're super creative. A lot of really interesting, um, videos have been made. And, and so we, we enjoy sharing those as well. Mm -hmm. And is this geared as an educational tool or is it also geared as a, a tool for third party companies to use to build a product around Cosmo as well? Uh, so it's, it's definitely more the, the former. So, um, I wouldn't call Cosmo a platform for building other, um, uh, for building other products yet. Um, it's really a, uh, this is more for exposing the functionality to hobbyists and education. Um, along those lines, I should mention as well, um, the S the SDK is where we started, but you could argue it's, it's also at one end of the spectrum, right? It, it involves Python and it's involves a certain level of, of programming ability, um, to, to really get into that. The other piece, the, the other end of that spectrum for, for really, uh, novice users, either adults who have no idea about programming or kit or young kids, um, we added another piece of functionality last year to the app, which is called Code Lab. Um, similar idea, but instead of exposing all that capability through Python um, and where you need to, you know, have a computer and plug your phone into it and go into SDK mode, there's now part of the Cosmo app which utilizes um, Scratch programming. So Scratch is a is a visual programming language, drag and where you drag and drop blocks, and it was developed by MIT and Google and uh, very popular online with kids. So we've incorporated that into Cosmo and basically given you access to a lot of that same functionality you have in Python, but now with 
this much simpler programming uh, visual programming language. So you can get exposed to uh, controlling the robot and making little programs and um, understanding the kinds of things you can do with the robot all within the Cosmo app now. And so that's that's all released and available. Um, and again, targeted more at at education. I, I would say one of the things that's important though is that we didn't launch Cosmo uh, as a STEM toy. Um, it's it's sort of a byproduct of all the, the the effort that went into trying to make it a good product in its own right, making it a lifelike robot and fun to play with and engaging. The the SDK and the Code Lab stuff is is super powerful and I think a really interesting aspect of it. But I think one of the reasons it's so compelling is that we started from the other side. We didn't start trying to make a STEM toy that's uh, for teaching kids to program. I think that's very hard to do successfully. We started by trying to make a really cool robot, which has a lot of personality and is super engaging. And then by virtue of all the stuff we had to build to make that happen, the, it makes Code Lab and the SDK full-featured and interesting in their own right. And as uh, as single board computers and GPUs get more powerful and hardware in general starts to accelerate, do you see robot toys and maybe even Cosmo pivoting to doing local computing? Sure. So we're absolutely already seeing this kind of thing. Um, uh, it's it's the same same revolution that I mentioned that made Cosmo po- Cosmo's camera possible, right? That cell phones are the reason that uh, cameras are cheap. Cell phones and, and mobile computing are also the reason that more and more compute is sort of coming down the ladder in terms of cost, uh, things that were in the phones, you know, two or three years ago that were the super high end phone are now the, the cheap chip. So, you know, that, as that continues to happen and as we start to see more and more of, um, specialized hardware for deep learning and, and computer vision, uh, being made available and, and coming down in cost. Yeah. I think, I think that's where we're going to start seeing a, an explosion of this kind of thing. Uh, this kind of smarts in devices happen. And it's interesting because you kind of get it on both ends of the spectrum that there's, I think, a movement towards pushing things down into the hardware because the hardware is getting cheaper, but also doing more and more stuff in the cloud. So I think I think both there's a time and a place for both. And I think both of those things are are certainly um, going to continue to grow. Are there any other exciting advances in technology for robotics um, that you think Cosmo uh, is looking forward to? Um, I guess, so for Cosmo specifically, um, I, I guess I would speak more in terms of, of just robotics in general and for, for, for Anki. So I think some of the things we just mentioned, I think the, the, the specialized hardware for, for doing a lot of, um, uh, of, of deep learning and more computation on board, I think those are going to pay off big. A lot of the advances in natural language processing and not to mention computer vision, are starting to, to have a larger and larger impact. Um, the, the one that I think is is still a ways off, but is is getting interesting as, as more of the academic community focuses on it, is manipulation, as we discussed earlier. I think that's what's really going to open up the world for robots to start doing, quote-unquote, useful work, as opposed to being, um, you know, uh, observers of the world, how, how they become participants in the world when they can start to do stuff. Uh, and I think that's going to be pretty interesting to see. And there's a lot of uh, exciting work happening in the academic community around reinforcement learning and, and what's called sort of learning to learn. How, how does a robot figure out how to use its own arm to pick things up uh, without having to, to teach it every, everything and to be able to do that robustly in the same way that it, computer vision, how do, how do you see things in, in computer vision uh, in a, such a wide variety of situations, lighting, et cetera. So 
Um, I think all that stuff coming together is is definitely going to be an exciting time for for this kind of thing in the next few years. Thank you for speaking with us today. Sure, no problem. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And that's the end of our interview. But as promised earlier, we wanted to tell you more about our new Patreon goal, in which we are asking you to help us cover the 2018 International Conference on Intelligent Robots. The event is due to take place in October in Madrid, Spain, and this year's theme will be Towards a Robotic Society, with a wealth of keynotes, presentations and workshops that promise to be really exciting and inspiring, and with the largest robotic exhibition in the history of the conference. We'd love to bring you the latest from the event in upcoming podcast episodes, so visit robohub.org forward slash podcast to find out more about how you can help us get there and to listen to all our past episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Cosmo with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>